So as we uh, continue on in the book of Romans, you know, we talked about last week, we were, when you get to Romans chapter 8, you really begin to get to the heart of what Paul is saying, the changes and what God has done in your life and what that should mean. You know, the first three chapters, he basically gives us all the bad news, that no matter who you are, no matter what all you do, as far as if the world considers you good, you still are lost without Christ. But the good news is Christ came and he paid the penalty for us. He, he By dying on the cross, he's both just in paying for sin and the justifier of those who have faith in him. So there's that, that positive aspect. And then chapter 5, we talked about what comes from that justification and, and what does that mean? In chapter 6, we talked about overcoming sin, but then in chapter 7, Paul says, yeah, but reality is, you know, I, I know I have the power to overcome sin, but sometimes I just don't feel like I have the power to overcome sin. And so we started last week talking about understanding what it means for us to overcome, because it's not a matter of saying, I want to overcome sin, so I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and make a New Year's resolution that I'm never going to do this again. It requires a transformation from the Lord. We talked about last week that it, there's this transformed standing with Christ. That there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We stand before Him holy and blameless. And He transforms our walk. That we no longer walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit. And He transforms our thinking and our mind that that now we, we begin to think the things of the Spirit and not the things of the mind, which therefore it, it transforms our character. But there's, if we stop there, then we get into a little bit of a problem. You know, you've heard me say it, and you'll hear me say it nine million more times. It's easier to go to a consistent extreme than to stay at the center of biblical tension. And the extreme here is, We've talked about what all the Holy Spirit has done for us and how the Holy Spirit changes us. But then the reality is if we mess up, where we are right now is we say, ah, it must be the Holy Spirit's fault, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit transformed my standing and my walk and my mind and my character. If I, if I, didn't, if I continue to sin, it must be His fault, right? Because he's the one that's got to give me the power to overcome. He must not have given me the power. Well, that's this balance, this direction. Now we're going to balance back the other way today because we do need to realize that it's not let go and let God. It's not this mentality that says, I just wait for God to do it all for me. There's an aspect that, where Paul tells us we have a responsibility also. We've got to make changes in our life. We've got to do certain things. It's not just allowing him to, to sit and do it. And I've heard people all the time, you know, well, God just, uh, God just didn't take that sin away from me. What does that mean? Are you just sitting around waiting for this, all of a sudden, this amazing feeling that comes over you, so therefore you're now no longer tempted to sin? Well, what does Hebrews say about Christ? He was tempted in all ways, just as we are, yet without sin. If Christ was tempted, why do we think we're not going to be tempted? But the issue is we don't have to give in to that sin. So let's look at Romans chapter 8, 
verses 12 through 14. Paul says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We have an obligation through the power of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. Now, that brings up three questions we need to ask. You know, what does it mean to put to death the deeds of the body? How do we do it? And why should we do it? See, putting to death the deeds of the body sounds hard. But what does Paul say in Colossians and in Ephesians? He says, put off the old, renew your mind, put on the new. Now, this last week, the re- part of the reason I'm <clears throat> struggling this morning, not because I'm sick, is because I mowed my lawn this week. And so half of my yard is still right here. I got sucked in somehow. I don't know. But I can guarantee you, when I came in from mowing, it was not a pretty sight. So what I did was I took those nasty clothes, took them off, Got clean, put on new clothes. Not that hard, right? Well, that's what Paul says, the same thing we do with the deeds of the body. We get rid of the sin in our lives. We we put it away. We renew our minds. We clean ourselves up with the scriptures. And we put on the new. We begin to walk in a new way. John R. R.W. Stott said this, a clear-sighted recognition of evil as evil, leading to such a decisive and radical repudiation of it that no imagery can do it justice except putting to death. A radical and decisive repudiation. Now that's the key. When we talk about putting to death the deeds of the body, How often do we truly want to radically and decisively repudiate it? I mean, the reality is, it wouldn't be a temptation if we didn't enjoy it. You know, I'm not tempted to do things that I I despise. You know, I'm never tempted to go mow the lawn. I I have to do it, but I don't just sit around going, wow, man, I just can't wait to get out there and do this. You know, I'm not tempted to do that. And so, what we've got to decide is how important is this sin to us? Because really, unfortunately, a lot of times, it's very important to us. We want to hang on to it. Remember we talked about that in Romans chapter 6? That it's that idea of, can I just keep that one thing to myself? Can I just have that one little vice? You know, everything else I'll follow the Lord, but I want that one thing that I can just keep to myself. And Paul says, no. We've got to put to death the deeds of the body. It's got to be a decisive repudiation of that. It's got to say, I'm not, in the power of the Spirit, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm getting rid of it. I'm putting it to death. What did, what did Jesus say? 
If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, Jesus wasn't talking about going around sticking stuff in our eyes or cutting off our hands. He's saying this idea of it being a decisive repudiation of what you're doing. Saying, I'm going to quit doing it. You say, well, Wade, you said last week we can't do that. We're not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. You're right. I cannot repudiate sin in my life in my own power and in my own strength. But I also can't sit around waiting for the Holy Spirit to take it away and not do something about it. It's a balance. It's doing both. It's understanding that, there's, that Christ has called us to both of those things. So you say, well, wait, that's all fine and good. You haven't told us how we can do it yet. Well, let's tell you how. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's the balance. If we stop with verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, then it becomes all up to me. I've got to do it. I've got to just decide I'm going to live this way. I've got to make a New Year's resolution. I'm going to be obedient to the Lord, and I just go for it. But we go to the second verse, we go to verse 13. It is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. So let's just be practical here. You have that sin that you say you want to repudiate, and now maybe the Lord's convicting you this morning to say, okay, I want to get rid of this sin in my life. How do I do it? Well, first off it is quit doing it. Work out your salvation. Quit doing it. Then also ask the Lord for the will to never do it again and the work to never do it again. It's asking Him daily, Lord, everything in me, in my flesh, wants to do this. But I want to be obedient to You. So You give me a new will. You change my desires. Again, it's not up to him to do all of it. Because the problem is, we say, Lord, change my desires as we continue to flirt around with the sin. And he's not going to change our desires then. Because we're not really willing to get rid of it. We want to walk that fine line. We've talked about this before. You know, when teenagers say, well, how far is too far? If you ask that question, you've already gone there. Okay? I mean, you're... Because you want to know, can I go a little bit further? And it's that idea of, of, you know, we're right here on the edge. I want to walk right on the edge of the cliff. See how close I can get to the edge of the cliff without falling off. And so we, we play around. Well, you know what? When you're walking on the edge, it doesn't take much to fall off. I read the other day, six people this year already... It's April. Six people this year have fallen to their death at the Grand Canyon. Now, it's a big hole. You know, you should be able to not fall in, right? I mean, it's really not rocket science. It's a big hole. You can see it coming. You didn't, you weren't walking along. Oops, I tripped and fell in a hole. It's a big hole. But the reason they fall is they're over here doing this. Huh. Wow, look way down there. Let me, oh, I can get a little bit closer. Uh, 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 uh. You know, and I'm never going to have that problem. You know, the Grand Canyon looks just as good from back here 
as it does from right here. There's, it, there's not that 10 feet doesn't change a whole lot except for my safety, you know. But the idea here is we want to play that game. Lord, please take away the desire for this sin. Lord, please take away the desire for this sin. Please, please, God, take away, please, you know. No. He will take away the desire as we begin to put away those desires. As we begin to say, Lord, I truly want you to change who I am. And he changes our will. And he also changes the power to do it. Paul says to put to death those deeds of that body. To, to, to decide to make a decisive break with that sin in our lives. And God will work in our, in our lives. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says we have to pull it out, look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it is. Then you have really dealt with it. I think the problem with most of us is we don't really hate it. We don't hate sin the way God, Christ hates sin. We enjoy it. And so he's saying, we gotta, we got to take that sin and look at it and realize how wicked it really is and hate it with the hatred of Christ's hate sin. Then we deal with it. Then it's, it's taken care of. But why do we do it? It's both an obligation. We're told to do it. We've got to be obedient to the truth to put to death the deeds of the body. But it's also a road to life. If we truly want to be what Christ has called us to be, if we truly want to walk in the power, we truly want that abundant life that he promises us, then we get rid of the sin in our lives and we begin to walk in the way that he's called us to walk. John Stott says, The only attitude to adopt towards the flesh is to kill it. You want, one of my favorite TV shows, Andy Griffith. And there's one show where this little dog shows up at the um, sheriff's office and Barney feeds it. Then the next day there's like six or seven dogs. And then the next day there's 35, 40 dogs. And they're trying to figure out what are we going to do with them. They take them all out to the field, let them go, and by the time they get back to the sheriff's office, they're all right there with them. <laughs> And my favorite line, Otis is in his cage over there, and he just keeps saying, gas him. <laughs> you know, Barney's going, what am I going to do with it? Gas him. <laughs> you know, now for those of you who are animal lovers, you don't like that line, but, but I think it's a funny line, you know, just, just gas him. Well, that's what we got to do with sin in our life, just gas it. Get rid of it. We had these people evacuate to our house. During Hurricane Rita back in, in, what year was that? 2005, something like that. I don't remember. Long time ago. And, and they had this little dwarf hamster that mom decided one day she was going to clean the cage. And a little girl came home from school that day and said, Mr. Wade, something's wrong with Pikachu. And, and I went in and Pikachu was stiff as a board and his little tongue sticking out. Yeah, something was wrong with Pikachu. Well, she had cleaned his cage with kaboom. She would gassed him. You know, and little Pikachu, no matter how much he wanted to, he wasn't going to run through that cage anymore. He pretty much was done. When there's sin in our lives, you got to gas it. Get rid of it. Put it to death. 
When you put it to death, it no longer has the ability to run through the cage. It no longer has the ability to, to control you. And so as we talked last week that the Holy Spirit has transformed who we are, transformed our standing with Christ, transformed our walk with Him, transformed our minds, transformed our characters. But we don't just sit and wait for Him to do it all. We've got to make a decisive break with sin in our lives. You know, it's easy for us in the church, and we talk about walking with the Lord to to think about my own personal life. How do I deal with this? How do I walk with the Lord? How do I do so and so and so and so? But Christ has not called us to do it by ourselves. And sometimes, you know, as we think about it, we, we talk about the church, and I know I've been in church all my life. And we always talk about going to church and all of that. And I've had, I remember being in a class in Bible college, you know, everybody draw a picture of the church. And, you know, those who were real spiritual drew people. Those of us who were not spiritual drew a building, you know. And, and so, you know, and the, the professor makes you feel like an idiot. Well, you know, the church isn't the building. And, and so, but the point's not whether we say we're going to church or we're going to, the church meets here or we're, you, The point of the body of Christ is not even that we call it the church. Jesus said he would build his church, and we use that terminology, but but what does that look like? You know, I was sharing last week about traveling around the world to to talk about church planting. You know, and I, I can remember going from one place to the next, and church looked different everywhere you went. And that's okay. Yeah, you can go throughout West Columbia. You can go down the street to every church, and every church in this city is going to look different. The way they do things, how they dress, how they sit, what songs they sing, how they do communion, all those things are going to look different. And we're not going to sit around and say who's right and who's wrong. Because the point of the church is not what we look like, the point of the church is not how we sit, how we, who preaches, who speaks, who does music. It, those, that's not the point. The point of the church is twofold. We're the body of Christ, that we're here to help one another, and we're here to reach the world with the gospel. That's what it's about. So it doesn't really matter what we look like, how we dress, how we meet, when we meet, all those kind of things. It's what are we doing in that time. What is Christ doing in our lives? See, in what climate, we talked about all this transformation, in what climate does transformation thrive? Now, we think about people. Bring up that next picture. We all have people in our lives that fit one of these categories. We have people in our lives that are like that measuring tape. That no matter what you do, you never quite measure up. You know, you never quite... Make the standard that they have for you. Or maybe we're that person. You know, don't sit around and point fingers. Maybe we're that person. Are those people who are like the hammer? They're about as subtle as a freight train. You know? Every time you talk to them, you walk away going, man, I'm like an idiot. <laughs> you know? Are those people who are like the skill saw? Man, they know how to cut you. They know how to make you hurt. 
You know, or they're, they're like that grinder who's just always rubbing against you and, and, and causing sparks. Or that axe that's there to just destroy anything in their sight. Or maybe they're like that vice. We all have those people who clamp on to you and don't let go for anything. Now, that all sounds bad. But the reality is, every one of those are necessary. In certain points, those things are good. certain points, those things are bad. You know, I saw where, where Jenny and David were throwing the axe thing or whatever. You know, they were doing pretty well with it. Have you seen the, the YouTube video where the girl throws it and it bounces off the ground and comes back towards her head? You know, throwing that axe can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing, depending on how well you throw it. You know, and so it's not bad that we have a measure and a standard. We talked about that. It's not bad that every once in a while we need to be hit over the head with something. It's not bad that we need to be cut to the bone sometimes. But the point is, all of these things have to work together. It's all a part of being in this together. Paul goes on here, beginning again in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The church of all places, needs to be where relationships thrive. We talked about it this morning. You know, we, we're a unique group of people. Not city church, but in some ways city church is unique, even for churches. But, but the church as a whole is a unique group of people. Because if we do it right, we can come together and some days we come and everybody's doing fine, and we love each other, and we move on. Some days we come, and one or two of us are just miserable. And rather than everybody going, I don't want to talk to them, they're miserable, is we love on them. We pull everybody in. We seek to, to help that person become all they can be. Or maybe that person is, is struggling with repudiating sin in their life. And they've told two or three brothers, hey, I really, I'm trying, but I just can't seem to overcome this. Rather than going, what's wrong with you? You come alongside. Put your arm around and try to help. Try to, to help them repudiate that sin, to overcome that sin. It's a place where relationships should thrive. Bill Hull said this, should be an environment of grace is a safe place in which people are encouraged to live out the dream God has for them. An environment of grace is where we are accepted for who we are. I can't tell you the number of people I've known over the years in ministry who quit going to church because they didn't feel accepted for who they were. They didn't feel like people really cared about who they were All people cared about was making them look like them. That's not what the church is about. 
You think of the 12 disciples. You know, you've got fishermen who all their lives have been spent on a boat. And if you've been around sailors, they're not always the cleanest guys, uh, verbally and everything else. These guys are rough. I mean, the sons of thunder. How do you get that name? <laughs> you know, these guys were, they were, you know, okay, you want us to call down hellfire on these guys? And Jesus going, slow down a little bit, man. This is it's not what we're about. And Peter, who keeps sticking his foot in his mouth. And Matthew, who the other 10, uh, other 11, he's cheated at some point in time probably during his time as a tax collector. If he hasn't, they know somebody he's cheated just to pat his own pocket. And then you got Simon over there that everything happens, he's ready to pull out his sword. All right, buddy, let's go cut off some heads and get this thing moving. Yet these guys are around each other and having to deal with one another. And then all of a sudden this guy named Paul who's been out arresting people to bring them to jail to be, to be killed for their faith shows up at a church meeting. And everybody's going... Okay, I've heard about this guy. I don't know that I want to hang out with him. What does Barnabas do? Hey, guys, let's pull him in. I've heard his story. I think he's legitimate. Let's pull him in. Now, most churches will go, we'll pull him in, but he can sit here. We're going to move his chair kind of out here to the side. Here, Paul, you can sit over here, and all you guys who are armed, y'all just keep an eye on him. You know, if he moves, shoot him. Unless, you know. I mean, Safi, you guys have met Safi before. He's been to church here. One of the very first two times that I had met Safi, I'm sharing a hotel room with this guy. Who had told me the first time I met him, he moved to the United States in the 70s to convert us to Islam. That he was excited that the Ayatollah took over Iran and that the Americans were held captive. Now, I can remember at that time frame thinking, every Iranian is my enemy. Now I'm in a hotel room with him sleeping in the bed next. Over there. I'm in this bed, he's in that bed. I'm going, keep an eye on him. <laughs> you, know, you got this Iranian man, what's going to happen? But Christ has changed us both. He changed Safi as a young man who was Islamic, he changed me as a child who grew up hearing about Christ. Same grace, same blessed assurance, same understanding that he has brought us together. We're in this together. Sometimes we're going to grate on each other's nerves. Sometimes we're going to get tired of that measuring tape. Sometimes we're going to get tired of that axe and that, that skill saw. Sometimes we wish that guy would just put that hammer away. But we're in it together. Matthew Henry says this, The spirit of adoption works in the children of God as filial love to God as a father, a delight in him, and a dependence upon him as a father. You know, and I know, I know people struggle with the idea that, of God as father. I, I understand that. I know that people who've had fathers that they just or abusive, or whatever it was, they have struggle understanding God as Father. But I think as we begin to develop as a family, we can get beyond that. 
we can get to the point where we understand that God as Father is not like our earthly father. I love my earthly father. I think he was great. I saw him love my mom. I saw him love us as kids. But he still doesn't compare to my heavenly father. He still doesn't measure up. And so we, we realize and understand that we've been brought together into a family that should make a difference. And what difference should it make? Let's look at the scriptures here. Verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It should bring a radical holiness. That as a family, we are encouraging one another to be led by the Spirit of God. To be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we encourage, we strengthen one another to be holy, to be what God's called us to be. Verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. He says here, we're no longer slaves. We've no longer been given the spirit of slavery. We talked about that in, in Romans chapter 6. That we're no longer slaves to sin, that we're slaves to righteousness. But it's not just me by myself who's been given a freedom to live however I want to live. We live in the body of Christ. We live together. We work together to walk in freedom. We help one another become all that God's called us to be. And it's not... It's not walking in a way that says, if I, I, I might can make it, I, I hope I can make it. You do realize that in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that after Christ had disarmed the rulers, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and we are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's no reason for us to fear. We walk in a freedom because we are seated with him in the heavenlies. We've been given everything we need. Peter says we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. We can walk in freedom. Now, I may not personally, at this stage in my life, have what I need to overcome this, but you might have it, and you come alongside me to help me. You know, Gil was talking about walking up Mount what? Mount Mitchell. You know, I'm glad he did it. I'm glad he didn't invite me. Um, you know, but you're walking up. There's times when you gotta, you gotta help one another. I can remember climbing Chimney Rock. Is it Chimney Rock? And I, you know, like y'all know I don't like heights. And there was one point where at Chimney Rock you had to kind of climb out onto this rock and up over the top. And I can remember standing there thinking, Y'all going to have to call a helicopter. It's just, it's just not going to happen, you know. If it's, but it wasn't just up to me. I had one buddy on the top, one buddy at the bottom who helped me get over that. Now, on my own, I would still be there today. I may have been buried there because by now, that's been a long time ago, I'd, I would have died. But, you know, it's that, that freedom that we need to help one another. And work with one another. And that comes from a familial closeness. 
We cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs of the same thing as Christ. I want to be able to say, and I think I can say it about City Church, that this is my family. That, that we talked about this morning. I can call on anybody and I can trust that what I share is going to stay between me and them. And they're going to do what they can to help me overcome. They're going to do what they can to help me make it through. That's not always true of every church, but it should be. Because we've been given the same spirit of adoption to call out to our Father, Abba, Father, that we are heirs together with Christ. And it also gives us the same goal. He says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, it's not about us being glorified. The issue is he gets the glory. We will be glorified with him, but the goal is we're striving for his glory and his honor, and we do that together as the body of Christ. Because as we think about it, transformed relationships equal transformed churches equal transformed cultures. For us to be able to reach the world with the gospel, we've got to be the church. We've got to be the body of Christ. We've got to work together. That's why I can go and deal with people who are Azerbaijani or Lesgi or whatever, and we can all be working for the same goal. And it's not just me who gets to travel overseas and do those kind of things. It's you as you go to work with a Presbyterian and a Methodist and a Baptist and a Pentecostal. As we're all in this together. And we need to see it that way. To see it's not a matter of a label that we give to one another. We are all sons of God. We are all heirs together with Christ striving for the same goal. So as we've been transformed personally in who we are and we daily put to death the deeds of the flesh and we begin to work together and walk together as the body of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, we bring God all the honor and glory and we accomplish what he's called us to be and do. Let's pray.